Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm the pastor of Preaching and Vision, and if I could, uh, really just preaching, I think is the title, the actual title. If I could clarify that one announcement on baptism, uh, don't just show up here around 7. If you'll go to the website, go to the uh, Connect tab, you can sign up for the baptism class uh, right there. You'll get an info with all the details that you you need to know. All right? Uh, So as he said, we are in a series on John. We've been walking through the Gospel of John, looking at the life of Jesus, looking at the the, the teachings of Jesus, looking at and seeing some of the, the, the miracles of Jesus. And today we just continue on in, uh, in John 14. And so let's get started. Uh, if I said to you, uh, finish this sentence or finish this statement, you can make it a sentence if you want. Home is, home is, we'd all have an answer, right? How, how does Hallmark answer that statement? How does it finish it? Home is, so proud of y'all. So proud. Home is where the heart. Who's heard this one? Home is never having to say you're sorry. No? Like seven of y'all. That's a fail. It's not true, uh, but it's a cute little saying, right? If you ask Charlotte, uh, one of our staff members, she said and says, home is where you wear your sweatpants. (laughs) We all have a definition of home, and if you ask the movie Garden State, uh, a movie that I've never seen, I think 10 years old, indie movie. I don't really do indie movies. Indie just says cheap to me, and so I, uh, I know it's offensive to many of you, and I don't care at all. Um, I'm sure it's good, it's just cheap. It's a category. All right, here's what they said about home. Um, here's what they said. You know, uh, you know that point in your life when you realize the house you grew up in isn't really your home anymore? All of a sudden... All of a sudden, even though you had some place to put your stuff, that idea of home is gone. That idea of home is gone. You won't ever have this feeling again until you create it, until you create a new idea of home for yourself. So here's what Garden State just said. It said idea uh, of home. It's, it's not just this place where you put your stuff. It's this feeling that you create. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say... Um, that, that Garden State, this, uh, I'm sure, really well done indie movie back in the day, has tapped into something. It's tapped into something, and that something is that we all believe them. We believe that, that this feeling of home is something that we're chasing, that we're after, that we long for, that we want, that this universal desire in humanity for home exists. So I'm going to give you two case studies uh, to try to prove it. You ready? Case study number one. Chip and Joanna Gaines. That's right. I'm talking about Fixer Upper. This Waco couple that fixes... Now, here's the question. They were insta-famous. Like, overnight. Like, nobody ever heard of Chip and Joanna Gaines except people that went to their camp back in the day. Uh, And then all of a sudden, they're like global celebs. Why? Is it because of their style? No. Her stuff's not that good. It's not that nice. Like, it's decent, it's okay, it's fine, but it's not like world-renowned, it's, it's whatever. Here's why. And y'all know it's true. Don't act like I'm the only one with that opinion around here. If I fitted every lady in here, I'm really sorry. Um, uh, my wife, most of all. Uh, I'm very sorry, babe. I love you. We're in this. Uh, here's the deal. 
They, they take these rundown shacks and they make them, not a house, they make them look and feel like a home, so much so that it oozes through the TV. This is what's so attractive about the show Fixer. It's why I like the show Fixer Upper. Men, you do too. You know it. It's not because they take rundown house and, and just make it look, it's because it looks and feels like a home when they're done. Now, apparently a home that though people don't get to keep, they have to buy, which I didn't know about until like a couple weeks ago, really ruined the show for me. But it looks and feels like a home, so much so that it comes to the TV. Case study number two. Listen to this. H-A-R. Houston Area Realty. Listen to this. Greater Houston. Rough numbers. 4.4 million adults. All right. Now, adult here for the purpose of defined by uh, 19 and up. All right, so this is not the people who are not just the people who are buying houses. This includes 70, 80, 90 year olds. Includes 18 to 25. 4.4, roughly 4.4 million adults. In January alone, 3.1 unique visitors to HAR. Why? Why? Is it that Houstonians, and obviously that includes people outside of Houston as well, I know this, but why? Is it that Houstonians are uniquely captivated by bricks, wood, mortar, carpet? Or is it that there's this longing inside of all of us for home? This universal longing for home. I think the answer is that there is. And our text today is going to tell us why. And so let's get into it. John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So before we jump into anything uh, in the rest of this text, we have to ask the question, why would he say to them, why would he say to his disciples, that's who he's talking to, let not your hearts be troubled. And if we, um, if we just put this uh, in the context of John, where they're at in John, here's what's happened. Um, for a moment, things look like they're really good. Things look like they were going to go really, really good. And then all of a sudden, Jesus pulls the disciples aside. And he says, hey, guys, look, let me, let me tell you what's actually going to happen. One, I'm going to die. Um, I'm going to die. This is not, not going to go well here pretty soon. Uh, I'm going to die because one of you is going to betray me. Uh, and then Peter, Peter, my boy, my boy, Petey Pete. Right now, man, you are full of gusto. And I love it. But tonight, three times, you're going to act like you don't know me. And so he turns to the disciples because it's created and unsettling in their soul and says, let not your hearts be troubled. And, and if we could just um, have some compassion on the disciples, um, who, who doesn't know what it's like to look at life and know life is about to go really bad. It's about to get really difficult. I'm walking into a season where life is difficult. And that created an unsettling in your soul. Every one of us in this room who are beyond the age of 12 know what that's like. This is what he's saying to the disciples. Listen, I, I know that you're, you, you see what I'm saying. You see what's going to happen. It's created this unsettling in your soul. And I'm saying to you, hey, guys, don't, let, let, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And so how does he respond to this unsettling in their soul? Verse 2, in my Father's house, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And so Jesus responds. He responds to this unsettling with an analogy about a house. He says, my father's house. In my father's house, there are many rooms. Now, um, he's not being literal. When he talks about a father's house, he's not talking about um, bungalow versus condo. He's not talking about yard versus no yard. He's metaphorical, metaphorical for heaven. And he's saying, in my Father's house, in heaven, there are many rooms for you. And I'm going to bring you back with me. I'm going to come and I'm going to bring you back to where I am, into the Father's presence, which brings us back to where we started. Where we started saying, hey, how would you finish this statement? Home is. Home is. Home is. We, we all have some statement. And depending on if we, uh, if we could have kind of a family combo right now, depending on what kind of home you grew up in is probably going to shape how you see home today. Right, and so when I asked the staff, I sent an email, said, hey guys, um, finish this. Home is, I got a myriad of different answers, but there was an overlapping, uh, th- there was an overlap in all of the answers, and it was this, that, that home is this place of unconditional acceptance. This place where you can just stop pretending you can be you, and you actually get loved more because of it. This longing for unconditional acceptance, and Jesus is saying that this exists in the presence of the Father. And here's why this is important. Here's why this is important. That Jesus is saying to his disciples that this, this day is coming, this day when you will be in the presence of the Father and you will experience the home that you have always longed for. And how you see that day can change and transcend and shape how you see today. Let not your hearts be troubled. There's a homecoming for you. Let not your heart be troubled. There's a home awaiting you where the unconditional acceptance and love that you have been seeking and searching for and longing for and that you are desperately giving yourself over to exists and it's waiting for you. And this home... Jesus, I think, is saying, I think the reason he uses this analogy is that Jesus knows the longing for this home is the universal DNA of humanity. It's what we want. It's what we're after. It's what we're striving for. It's what we're chasing. And Jesus is saying um, it exists. It exists. It's woven into us. And now the question in verse 5, how do we get there? It's a great question. Verse 5. And Thomas said to him, Lord, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? There's the question. Thomas asked it. How can we know the way? You see, if verse 2, if if verse 2 reveals the universal longing of humanity, Thomas' question reveals the universal question of humanity. Right? How do we get to where that longing exists. How do we know the way? How do we get there? That's why, have you ever noticed, um, have you ever noticed at a funeral, when you're at a funeral, everyone says, everyone says, graciously and lovingly, they're in a better place now. Have Have you ever noticed that you feel an obligation to say 
hey, they're in a better place now. Why? Why? Why do we feel that obligation to say um, comforting words in a moment like that? Why? Because we want this home. We, we instinctively and innately know humanity wants this home, and we want to comfort those who are hurting by saying they found that home. They're there. That's why we long to say that, to comfort with the words. They're in a better place right now. And Jesus answers this question, and I don't think it is an overstatement to say that what Jesus is about to say, his answer, is one of the most controversial statements in all of human history. And here it is. And Jesus said to him, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And now let me, let me stop and tell you why this is such a controversial statement. And so this is so controversial. Um, in the beginning of our series in John, we said that John has two audiences. He's got a Jewish audience and he's got a Greek audience. The Jewish audience said, I, I know who God is. I know who God is. And the, the Greek audience was a uh, philosophical pluralist. Um, if there's a God, we know there's a lot of different roads to get to that God. And Jesus, in this one statement, is sitting down across from both of them, looking them in the eye and saying, you're both wrong. You're both wrong. Where it says, I am I am the way, the truth, and the life. This I am, this is a flag statement out of the Old Testament. It's a statement of deity. It's Jesus declaring, I am God. It rolls right back to when, when God said to Moses, hey, go and tell them I am sent you. That God said to Moses, I am. Moses, great figure in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is um, the part of the Bible that comes before Jesus. New Testament, the part of the Bible that starts with Jesus and then, and then shows the church after Moses, God said to him, I am, and Jesus is saying, I am. This is a declaration of deity. It's a declaration of deity by Jesus. It's a, it's a statement by him saying, I am God. But then he goes another step farther and he counters the Greeks and he says, no one gets to the Father except through me. He said, hey, you Greeks who think there's a lot of different roads to get to the same place. Jesus is saying, no, 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 there, there's one. There's one road and I'm it. There's one way, and I'm it. There's one path, and it's I am, and I am is me. Now, let me tell you what this does. Now, we need to, we need to talk about this uh, in, in, in a bit of depth here, uh, because what Jesus just said right here, it eliminates the possibility of liking Jesus. You see it? Because of what he just said, you simply cannot like Jesus, right? If what he said is true, if what he said is true, I am God, the only way to the Father, then he deserves our undevoted, undivided, devoted, complete love and devotion. Undivided, unhindered worship of Jesus. That's what he deserves if what he said is true. But if what he said is not true, if what he said is not true, then Jesus is a deceiver who has misled millions and millions of people. You see, that there is no option, there is no category for Jesus to say he's a good teacher. And you can't say he's a moral guy. 
He is moral, but you can't say that's all that he is, right? Because if he's a, a good teacher, then either what he just said is true or it's false. And if it's true, he's much more than a good teacher. And if it's false, it's the greatest lie the world's ever known. So he can't be just a good teacher. And he's certainly not moral alone, right? Because if, if what he said is true, morality for him transcends who he is. But if what he said is false, it's the most immoral thing anyone has ever done. We simply cannot like Jesus. If what he said is true, if we understand the teachings of Jesus, if we know what he said, what it is that he taught, we cannot simply say, I think he's a good teacher and a great moral leader. If it's true, he deserves our undevoted love and devotion. If it's not true, there's no reason we shouldn't hate him. We have to choose. Do we believe what Jesus said? Do we believe the teachings of Jesus or do we not? But we can't like him. There is no middle ground here with Jesus. Which says, which says, to some of us, we need to stop playing the religious game. Which says to some of us in this room, that we need to stop playing that religious game where we've got one foot in, one foot. What's that game as a kid that you play? Like, put your right foot in, put your right. What is that called? I can't understand any of you guys. So, okay. Hokey pokey. That's the game. Uh, some of us have this like hope. I'm not even going to do. I'm doing that analogy. It's too late. I can't back out of it. I wish I could, but I can't. Um, we have that hokey pokey thing going on with Jesus, right? One foot in, one foot out. And that's the religious middle ground that Jesus is saying there's no place for. If what he said is true, undivided devotion and love. If what he said is not, we take our foot out and we hate the man. He has misled millions. There's no religious middle ground with Jesus. So Jesus answered, how do we get home? How do we get to this Father's house with many rooms? I am the way. Now what is home like? Verse 8, Philip said to him, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, let's stop real quick. Before we hit verse 10, and Jesus paints a picture of, of what this home is like. We need to see what, G what, what Philip just did. Did you see Philip's question? Hey Jesus, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Now what Philip just did is he revealed the religious human heart. See, we said religion is when you believe you have to earn your way to God. right? But the religious heart doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with I have to earn God's approval. The religious heart goes farther and says God has to earn my approval. This is the great blasphemy of pure religion where we say, I earn my way to God. It's also God has to earn my approval. Jesus, show us the Father and I'll be satisfied. It'll be enough for me. This is the religious human heart that says, Jesus, if you loved me, if you loved me, why do I not have a fill in the blank? Why do I not have a job yet? Why do I not have a husband or a wife or a child or a house or a wife? If you loved me, Jesus, why is my family that I grew up in such a train wreck? If you loved me, 
why Jesus, if you loved me, you would prove it, and you would prove it like this. That's the religious heart. That's the religious heart. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. Let's keep reading verse 10. Do you believe? Do you believe that I, this is Jesus, do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say, that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus is saying to us, home. You know what this home is going to be like? Here's the picture. Look at the Father and the Son. Look at me and the Father. This is what home is going to be like. Now, I, I hear your question. I hear some of you asking the question, where in the world is that in verse 10? I don't see that in verse 10. I'm reading verse 10 right now, and I don't see that in verse 10. Let me tell you where that's at in verse 10. You see the word dwells, the Father who dwells in me. The word dwells is the same word as the word rooms. One's a noun, one's a verb, same word, menomene. The word dwells is the same word as the word rooms. John is doing a Greek Jedi mind trick. I don't do Star Wars. I think that's from Star Wars. Sci-fi. It's boring. I didn't hear what was said, but I'm moving on. <laughs> I'm doing my best to offend every cultural sensitivity in this room today. So I'll see you guys never. Um, <laughs> John is doing this. I'm not, do, not, not doing that again. I'm not going on that road. John is flagging the word rooms with the word dwells. And when you read the Father dwells in me, it, Immediate word picture right back to verse 2 where he says the rooms, this is what it looks like. It looks like the Father dwelling in the Son, Son in the Father. This is what it looks like. You want to you know what my Father's house is going to be like? It's going to be like this intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. This is what it's going to be like dwelling. This is what it's going to be like. And here's why we needed to stop and look at Philip's statement. Here's, here's why. The religious heart that needs proof never fuels intimacy and relationship. The religious heart that demands, prove to me that you love me. Prove to me. Prove to me. Jesus, show us the Father and it's enough for me. And we all know this. Like we know that this never fuels relationship, right? If you're dating in this room right now, you two are dating. This might create an awkward lunch conversation, but you're welcome. If you're in here dating and you constantly feel like I've got to prove to the other person, I've got to prove to the other person, I've got to prove to the other person, I've got to prove that I'm with them, that I'm for them, that I'm not dreaming about somebody else. How, how often do you think that leads to marriage? I'll answer that question. Never. At least it shouldn't. I'm not saying you shouldn't get married if that's you. I'm saying that shouldn't lead you to marriage. Right? Hey, will you marry me as a means to prove to somebody that I actually do love you is not a great reason to get married. That's for free, not part of the sermon. Or worse, or worse, if you're married already and you and your spouse are constantly living on the treadmill titled Never Enough. 
Never enough. Never enough. Never enough. Never enough. Nothing I do is good enough. Nothing I do is good enough. Nothing I do is good enough. How, how many marriages that exist like that do you think are flourishing right now? The last stats said roughly 0%. We know this. We know that the religious heart that says if you need to prove it doesn't lead to flourishing relationship. When you bring that to Jesus and you're constantly and consistently saying to Jesus, prove that you love me. Prove it. Prove it. Prove it. You will never experience today the intimacy of tomorrow. You'll never experience the relationship that exists in my Father's house today. Not even a taste of it. If you're constantly expecting God to prove to you that He's for you, with you, and loves you. So there's a home that's to come that's marked by the intimacy and the relationship with the Father and the Son. Jesus says, I'm the way to that home. So how then do we follow Jesus there? Verse 11. Believe me, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on the account of the works themselves. How do we follow Jesus home? Believe, believe in me, either in who I am or what I've done, but believe. And when he says on account of the works themselves, works in the Gospel of John um, are uh, talking about the signs that Jesus did, these miracles that Jesus did to um, reveal who he was. Um, in his life. And there's one of these works that would have been uh, in the rear view mirror, uh, front and center, in my minivan on the camera, right? Front and center in the lives of these disciples. And it would have been right out of uh, John 11, where Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. And after he did, he's talking to his sister. He's talking to Lazarus' sister, and he said this Jesus said it to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. What does that sound like? Sounds like John 14, 6. Sounds like John 14, 6. But that statement, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that didn't, it didn't come out of a vacuum. It didn't come out of the vacuum for the people. And, and sometimes, if you want to really feel the weight of what the Bible is saying, you need to put yourself um, in the shoes of the person having a conversation with Jesus. And sometimes, and this is one of those times where you have to put yourself uh, in the shoes of, of a first century reader, reading the Gospel of John for the first time. You've got to pretend that like, like you've never seen it, never read it, your first century, you open it up, you've heard rumors about who this Jesus was, and you're reading it for the first time, when you hit and the life, that would have flagged right back to the resurrection of Lazarus. If you put yourself in their shoes, it would have been screaming that life equals resurrection, but resurrection requires death. Life equals resurrection, but resurrection requires death. You would have had this jump out. You would have you would have seen and heard the way to life is death. The way up is down. And listen, you, you, you know this. I know this, right? Inside, your, if you're roommates, if you're 
married, if you're living with somebody, there are times where you've got to crucify your desires for the sake of the desires of someone else. You know this. It's woven into us. And you see what Jesus is saying here is you, you have to die to live. You, you have to crucify your earthly desires so that Jesus can resurrect heavenly ones. You have to crucify your earthly desires so that Jesus can resurrect heavenly desires. And resurrection requires death but leads to life. And in the spirit of John 11, the question on the table for you is this. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that the way to life is death? Do you believe that there's a resurrection coming with the Father's house? where we will experience the unconditional love and acceptance that we've all longed for. Do you believe this? If you do, verse 12 is for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now, greater works than these. What are the greater works? Well, we have three options uh, for what the greater works could possibly be. Either uh, it's greater in kind, uh, it's greater in number, or it's greater in scope. Right? Greater in kind, uh, that we would do greater, better, more miraculous miracles than Jesus. But that one's a hard one to, to buy as the option because um, it's hard to beat turning water into wine, bringing dead people back to life. It's just hard to really get better than that, right? Um, so maybe it's greater than greater in number. Uh, and the, the problem with that one is there's a perfectly good word that John could have used to say we would do more in number than he did. Uh, and so that can't be what it is. The answer is greater in scope. That when it says I am going to the Father, when I'm going to my Father, He's going to the Father and the locus of presence where Jesus is is no longer simply physically where He's at on the earth. But as he goes to the Father, where he is extends and expands through the local church, through the global church, that it's this, the greater work is this global invitation to God, remembering what the purpose of the miracles were in the first place, to reveal who Jesus is. That was the greater purpose to the greater works. And we, we get to live that out and be a global invitation home. The greater works so that we get to be a part of inviting globally men and women home. Home to my Father's house. And we understand this when we see verse 12 like that. Verses 13 and 14 can make sense. It says, whatever you ask in my name, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, on the surface... Ask me anything in my name and I will do it. I will grant you that sounds confusing. But when it's connected to verse 12, that's connected to the rest of the passage, here's what we see. In my name, in my name is not, um, hey, here's a prayer formula to get whatever you want, right? So it's not, I want a Lamborghini. In Jesus' name. It's not, I want a fourth bedroom. In Jesus' name. I want a wife in Jesus' name. It's not creating a formula to get what you want from God. Praying in the name of Jesus is praying in line with 
the heart of Jesus. It's praying in line with what Jesus' heart was so that the Father would be glorified in the Son. And the best place to see the heart of Jesus is in the Lord's prayer. This Matthew 6, this famous prayer that goes, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It means praying in line with the heart of Jesus. And praying in line with the heart of Jesus does not ignore our daily needs. It simply doesn't start there. It doesn't ignore our needs. It doesn't ignore daily provision. It just doesn't start there. It starts with your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't ignore our needs. It simply doesn't start there. And I confess that when I first started studying uh, for today, I could not figure out why. Why? John recorded Jesus, and Jesus started um, with my father's house. There are many rooms and finished with prayer. I couldn't figure out why he finished with prayer when he started with in my father's house. It made no sense. I couldn't figure it out why. But here's what I think that the answer is. Here's what I think the answer is. That, that do you want to know? Do you want to know? Here's the measurable, engineer. Here's the measurable. Do you want to know that our home to come is changing our life today? Look at what you pray for. Do you want to know that the room in the Father's house that's waiting for you is changing and shaping and transcending who you are today, right now? Look at what you pray for. Are your prayers consumed by oil prices and HAR? Or is the leading edge of your prayer, Father, your kingdom come? Father, your kingdom come. Listen, let me, let me tell you, um, I'm over time, but I'm going to do this anyway. I got the mic. You can't stop me. I love my wife. Um, I love, we have three kids. I love my kids. I love my family. I love that I get to wake up and those kids are in the house and then they start disobeying immediately and then we take them to school and let them disobey there. And in the last six and a half years since we had our first child, I have consistently seen the leading edge of my prayer start to drift towards them. And not your kingdom come. And listen, I'm not saying that praying for them is not praying your kingdom come. I'm telling you my heart wasn't a leading edge prayer of your kingdom come and land it in their lives. It, it was practical things for them. And it is a good and holy and beautiful and right prayer that I should pray but the leading edge of my prayer should be your kingdom come. Father, be glorified in the Son in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. You see, Sojourn, let me, let me tell you why we're here. Let me tell you why we exist. Why, why we're here. Why we are in the heights right here. Why we're in Houston. Why this local church that was planted in 2009, 2010 that exists today. When we stand here or when we sit in a member's meeting or we're in wherever and we say, hey, let me, let me tell you what we're dreaming about, guys. Let me tell you what we dream about. Here's what we dream about. You ready? We dream about this day 
day when there would be a neighborhood parish in walking distance of every man, woman, and child in the Heights and then in Houston one day. That there would be this day where every one of our neighbors would walk out of their house and they would look over on a Wednesday night or a Sunday afternoon or a Tuesday night or a Sunday night or a Friday night or a whatever night or day and they would see this church coming together, living life at this house and go, hey, I've it seems like they've got a lot of friends. I wonder where they met them. Here's why. Here's why we dream about that day. Because Sojourn exists. We're here to invite our neighbors and our city home. We're here to be a global invitation, localized in the Heights and in Houston, to say to our neighbors, to say to our friends, to say to our coworkers, come home. Come home. Come, come walk into this community and inside of this community in the way that we interact, love one another, fight, disagree, all of the above. Come and experience a little taste of what my Father's house is like. May our prayer always be. May it always be. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven so that our neighbors might have a living and consistent invitation home. Home to the unconditional acceptance that exists in my Father's house. Let me pray. Father, I love you. I thank you for uh, these men and women. I thank you that we uh, can be here, that we can gather together, that we can listen and learn from Jesus, that we... Uh, uh, can get a taste of what it looks like to live like Jesus. And I pray for, uh, for those in the room right now who are, uh, uh, who are living one foot in, one foot out, who are trying to straddle the middle when it comes to Jesus, that they would know that there is no middle when it comes to Jesus. That, that maybe we came in here today and we didn't really know what Jesus taught, but now we know what He taught. And knowing what He taught now, we can't live in the middle and say, I like Him anymore. He is worthy of our love and devotion or He's worthy of our dismissal. But there is no middle ground. And then for those of us in here who hearing about my Father's house just, just swirls memories of the house they grew up in and they're not positive memories. I pray that they would know that Jesus, You came to redeem and reconcile both them and their families. And one day, one day, there'll be a room in a house where all the brokenness of life will be a distant memory. And we'll delight forever. In Christ's name, amen.